Revelation chapter 5. Uh, it's not often that a pastor requests that I preach a message that he hasn't even heard. But at the breakfast that I had the privilege of speaking at just a couple of weeks ago, we were talking afterwards and one of your members brought up a message that they had heard me preach several years ago. And uh, we were just talking about it. Pastor Tony says, would you preach that here? I said, you haven't heard it. He said, well, it's got to be better than the last one you preached here. So, so I said, all right, all right. Um, and it's not often that I preach a somewhat controversial message in, in a church that I've only been at a couple of times, but this is somewhat controversial. And I'm not sure that all of you will agree with me on this. And that's fine. It's okay. Because you have every right to be wrong. <laughs> just, just want you to know that. But I'm not, seriously, I'm not sure that all of you will agree because it may not be something you've heard before. It's not new, it's not heretical, but it's different. It's a different look at Revelation chapter 5 and a concept that we hear about constantly that I think we've gotten wrong biblically for the most part in the church. Now, to get the context, I want to read verses 1 through 5. Out of respect and reverence for the Word of God, would you stand as I read Revelation chapter 5, verses 1 through 5? God's word says this, And I saw on the right hand of him that sat on the throne a book, written within and on the backside sealed with seven seals. Now most of you know that this was a scroll. It was not a book like we have today because they didn't have printing presses and so forth. Everything was in a rolled up scroll. And often a contract would be written in such a way that you would write a portion of the contract, roll it a little bit, and then you would put a seal there to signify that that portion of the contract had been agreed upon by all of the parties. And then there would be some more writing, and they would roll it a little farther, and then they would put another seal, again, indicating that that portion of the contract had been agreed upon. Well, this is a seven-sealed book, and it's a contract. It says, and I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, who is worthy to open the book and to loose the seals thereof? And no man in heaven nor in earth, neither under the earth, was able to open the book, neither to look thereon. And I wept much. This is John speaking because he is seeing a vision as he writes the book of Revelation. He says, and I wept much because no man was found worthy to open and to read the book, neither to look thereon. Now, I'll leave it to your pastor to interpret the significance of this seven-sealed book and what it actually means. But suffice it to say, the future of the human race is dependent upon the opening of this seven-sealed book. All of the things that we find written in the rest of the book of Revelation is dependent upon the opening of this seven-sealed book. It must be opened. But there was no one that was worthy, and John begins to weep profusely 
because he knows how important this is. I wept much because no man was found worthy to open and to read the book, neither to look thereon. And one of the elders saith unto me, Weep not. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, hath prevailed to open the book and to loose the seven seals thereof. Father, I pray that you would bless this message. Empty me right now of everything that is me and fill me with everything that is you. Because, Father, if we hear from me, my thoughts, my ideas, we have all wasted our time tonight. We know you're with us because you promised your presence. But, Lord, we desire far more than your presence tonight. We desire your power. And so we pray that you might accomplish all that you desire to accomplish. Drive away every hindrance, anything, anything, Father, that would take our attention away from what you have for us tonight. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. There is this seven-sealed book upon which the future of the human race and the rest of the book of Revelation is completely dependent upon, and yet there is no one in heaven, earth, anywhere that is worthy to open the book. And one of the elders says, it's okay, don't worry, because the lion of the tribe of Judah hath prevailed, and he'll open the book. And so immediately, instantly, John begins to scope out heaven, and he's looking for the lion. You with me on that? He immediately is beginning to look for the lion. Where is the lion? This book has got to be opened. The lion of the tribe of Judah hath prevailed. Where is he? And he begins looking for the lion. Now that brings us to our text, which is actually verse 6. And that's what I want us to look at for the next few minutes tonight. The first thing I see here in verse 6 of Revelation chapter 5 is a surprising revelation. This is the book of Revelation. Here is a surprising revelation. Look at verse 6. And I beheld and lo, today we would say, I was looking and wow, wow, oh my goodness, wow. John sees something that he was not anticipating. He sees something that he was not expecting. You're going to have to help me. My memory is getting terrible. Ask my wife. Now, who and what was John looking for? That's right, the lion. Okay, he is looking for the lion, but he finds something surprising. I beheld, and lo, something shocked him. Something surprised him. Something stopped him in his tracks. A surprising revelation. The second thing I see here in verse 6 is a strategic revelation. It says, and I beheld, and lo, what are the next three words? In the midst, in the middle. John is looking for, what's he looking for? Yeah, that's right, he's looking for the lion. He finds something surprising, and the Word of God says there is something or someone in the middle. 
right smack dab in the middle. Now, what is he in the middle of? What is this person, this personage in the middle of? Well, it says, I beheld and lo, in the midst of the throne. Now, what is the throne symbolic of? Authority. Kingship. Lordship. Here, it is the throne in heaven. And right in the midst of this symbol of authority and power and majesty is someone or something that is right in the middle. So it says in the midst of the throne, and then next it says, and of the four beasts. In the midst of the throne and of the four beasts. Now who in the world and what in the world are these four beasts? Well, if you go over to chapter 4 and look at verse 8. And the four beasts had each of them six wings about him, and they were full of eyes within, and they rest not day and night, saying, Holy, holy, holy Lord God, which was and is and is to come. Now, we don't understand all there is to know about these four beasts, but we know this. They were kind of in charge of worship. They were around the throne of God and they were leading the thousands upon thousands, millions upon millions that in Revelation 4 and 5 had gathered around the throne and they were all worshiping and praising someone on the throne. And these four beasts, day and night, continuously are saying, Holy, holy, holy Lord God Almighty. They're leading the worship. So whoever or whatever this is in the midst of the throne, all authority, and in the midst of all worship, and then it goes on, the midst of the throne and of the four beasts, and in the midst of the elders. Well, there are 24 of these elders, and there's some controversy about who and what these elders represent. And again, I'll allow your pastor to explain all of the significance of that. But here's what I believe that they represent. There are 12 who represent the 12 tribes of Israel or the Old Testament saints. All of the believers from the Old Testament summed up in the 12 tribes of Israel. Then in the New Testament, we had the 12 apostles. And together you have 24 elders, 12 representing the Old Testament saints, 12 representing the New Testament saints. So in other words, you put all 24 of them together and you have all of the believers of all time. All of those in the Old Testament and all of those in the New Testament. And again, their numbers are countless millions. And these 24 elders are the representatives of all of them. So get this. This person, this personage that John is about to see is in the very center, in the midst of all authority and power. He is in the center of all worship He is the very center of the lives of all believers from all time, both the Old Testament and the New Testament. In the midst of all of this is someone. Who's John looking for? That's right. He's looking 
for the lion. So we've seen a surprising revelation and we've seen a strategic revelation. Whoever this is, is in the middle of all of this. And then the next thing I see is a significant revelation. Look again at verse 6. And I beheld, and lo, in the midst of the throne and of the four beasts, and in the midst of the elders, what's the next word? Stood. Now, my friend, that is significant. Why is it significant? Well, if you look at the context, in chapter 4 and in chapter 5, everyone around the throne is in what position? They're prostrate. They're not just on their knees, folks. They're on their faces around the throne. Do you get the picture? Can you imagine this in your mind? Millions and millions and millions of the saints in heaven have gathered around the throne and the four beasts are leading them in worship. And they all fall and they are prostrate around the throne. But there is one who is standing. There is one and only one who is standing. Now what does that represent? Conquest. Victory. In the midst of all of these millions of saints, there is one and only one that has earned the right to stand. And the millions and millions are worshiping him. Do you see it? That is a significant revelation. But then, fourth, I see a salient revelation. A salient. Now, what in the world does the word salient mean? And I didn't choose that just because it fits the alliteration. Salient is something that sticks out above and beyond everything else. Do you remember back to your English literature courses? You were given a chapter of a book to review. And your professor or your teacher said, we want you to read chapter 4 and we want you to write down the one salient point. In other words, what's most important? What stands out above and beyond everything else in that chapter? The word salient can also be referred to as a piece of ground or property that's jutting out into a body of water like a peninsula. Out of all the land around, there is one piece of land that is jutting out, and it is salient. It's standing out above and beyond everything else. Well, what is the salient revelation here? Who is John looking for? That's right, the lion. Let's look at verse 6. I beheld and lo, in the midst of the throne and of the four beasts, and in the midst of the elders stood, read me the next two words, a lamb. Folks, if you're taking notes tonight, would you write this down? Would you please? And if you don't write it down on paper, write it down on your heart. John was looking for the lion, but he found a lamb. He found a lamb as it had been slain from the foundation of the world. He was looking fervently 
He was looking dramatically for the lion of the tribe of Judah, but he didn't find the lion. He finds a lamb as it had been slain, having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent forth into all the earth. Now, why is this so important? Here's what I believe that we get wrong an awful lot. Where does this whole thing of the lion of the tribe of Judah come from? We hear it all the time today. There are all kinds of songs, a lot of contemporary worship songs about the lion of the tribe of Judah. I don't know whether you saw the movie God's Not Dead, which was a wonderful movie. It ended with that great song, God's Not Dead. And part of that song says, he's living on the inside, roaring what? Roaring like a lion. Now, where does that come from? You would think as often as we hear it, and as many songs contain that phrase, you would think it's all over the Word of God. Well, it's not. In fact, it's not found anywhere in the Word of God except here, the Lion of the tribe of Judah. It comes from the prophecy back in Genesis chapter 49 when Jacob is blessing his sons. And when he comes to Judah, his son Judah, who would become the tribe of Judah, Jacob makes a prophecy concerning the lion of the tribe of Judah. And ultimately, it was a prophecy of Jesus Christ. But here's something that most people don't understand. Jesus is never referred to as the Lion of the tribe of Judah in all of the New Testament, except here in Revelation chapter 5 when he was looking for the lion, but he found what? He found a lamb. Now, in this dispensation in which we live, in this New Testament age, there is someone who is known as the lion. In First Peter chapter 5, verse 18, we are told that there is a certain being that goes around roaring, seeking whom he may devour. Now, who is that? Yeah. Satan goes about like a lion seeking whom he may devour. Some of you are looking at me so very strange. A friend of mine, a great pastor, said, you're looking at me like a tree full of owls. But it's true. Jesus, during his earthly ministry, is never referred to as the lion of the tribe of Judah. Never. The only being in this dispensation in which we live that is referred to as the lion is the old devil himself. Now, I'll come more to that. I'll give you some more to think about on that in just a moment. But I want to challenge your thinking this morning, or this evening, pardon me. I want to challenge your thinking because you see, today in our culture, in our society, everybody wants to be the lion. Even Christians. Everybody wants to be the lion. Who in the world wants to be the lamb? And I'll tell you why. 
Now, you got a little room over here. There's a door there. Now, if you were to put a lion inside that door, shut the door, shut it all up, and you don't feed it for five days, okay? And then after five days, you take a little sheep. You take a little lamb, open the door, pitch the lamb in there, and close the door. What's going to happen? Lamb chops. Right? There is no earthly, physical, natural way that the lamb is going to prevail over the lion. But you see, here's the problem. We're not supposed to be living a natural, purely physical life. We're to be living a supernatural life. We're not to be living in the power of the flesh. We're to be living in the power of the Spirit. And everywhere I look, I see Christians trying to be the lion. Pastor Tony, I can't tell you how many pastors' meetings I've been to. And maybe the words weren't used lion, but we were taught in these pastors' meetings, you go back and you be the lion. You be the leader. And if those people in your church rebel against you, you get in the pulpit and you roar a little bit. Can you identify with that? You've heard that. I have. Are you in sales? How many of you are in sales? Retail sales or wholesale sales? All right, if you're in sales. How many of you have been to a seminar in sales, selling, whatever? How many of you? Okay. Now, when you go to those meetings, do they teach you how to be the lion or the lamb? Right? It's always they teach you how to be the lion. Because again, pardon the repetition, but in our culture, in our society, who in the world would want to be the lamb? We want to be the lion. Well, let me give you some contrast very quickly, and I'll try to hurry. Let me give you some contrast between lions and lambs, and then in just a few moments, I want to ask you the question. Who and what are you identifying with tonight? The lion or the lamb. Here's the first contrast if you're taking notes. The lion is the king of beasts. Right? There's no other animal in the animal kingdom that is called the king of the beasts. Now why? He's not the biggest. There are many animals that are bigger than the lion. And there are a couple, not many, but there are a couple of beasts who will actually find the lion as prey. But the lion is still called the king of beasts, and the lion is someone who needs a throne. A lot of Christians need a throne. They want power. They want authority. They want people to bow down to them. A whole lot of people in the world that we live in want a throne. They want to be in charge. They want to be in control. I've known a whole lot of fathers and husbands through the years who tried to rule their house like a lion. And when dad walked in the door, everybody better give him the respect that he was due because he was the lion. But I've known a lot of wives and mothers who had the same attitude. They wanted to be the lion. I have met countless people in Bible-believing churches who were determined to be lions. 
They wanted to be in leadership. They wanted to be in a position of authority, and they wanted to have a position of importance. They were the lion. Well, the lamb, on the other hand, is always presented in Scripture as either a servant or a sacrifice. A servant or a sacrifice. What did Jesus say when he came to this earth? He came as the ultimate servant. And he taught his disciples that the ultimate position among his followers was to be a servant. That's why I love the book of James. James, of course, was the half-brother of Jesus. Now, before the resurrection and the crucifixion, I have a very distinct feeling that James couldn't stand Jesus. Because the Bible tells us that none of his brothers believed on him until after the resurrection, right? So if they did not believe who Jesus was, if his own brothers who were raised with him, lived with him, didn't believe he was the Son of God, how would you like to grow up in a home where your brother was perfect? That's how my two siblings felt when I was growing up. But I mean, imagine having a brother that was never in trouble, never did anything wrong, and you were just a normal, ornery, snotty-nosed kid. And then not only that, when they got older, the neighborhood around Jesus, the city of Nazareth, hated him. They tried to kill him in his hometown. Can you imagine how they treated his brothers? Oh, how's your brother doing? Walked on any water lately? How's the brother doing? Healed anybody lately? Hey, has your brother raised anybody from the dead lately? Huh? James must have hated his brother. Seriously. He must have hated him. And yet when he writes his epistle, James begins his epistle by saying, James, a servant. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. He could have began his epistle, I mean, after the resurrection, he believed in Jesus. And now he could have said, James, half-brother of our Lord. James, pastor of the First Baptist Church of Jerusalem. Because he was. Well, that was a Baptist church. You know that. But instead, he says, James, a doulos, which is the Greek word. There are many kinds of servants. There are servants who earned a living, you know, the hired help. But the doulos was the slave who was bought and sold and had no rights of their own. They were just a piece of property. And James says, James, a servant, a doulos of God, and of the Lord Jesus Christ. Because he knew that there was no higher position among the followers of Jesus than to be a doulos, a servant. So the lion is king of beasts, and I'll hurry, but the lamb is either a servant or a sacrifice. Secondly, a lion is self-sufficient. A lion is self-sufficient. He will hunt for himself. Thank you very much. 
Don't need to give him a meal. Although, lions are pretty cool, pretty smart if you study lions because if you study lions, the male allows the female to do all the hunting. She does all the work and she brings it home and he just eats it. I kind of like that idea. Not really, not really. But a lion is self-sufficient. There are so many Christians who are trying to be self-sufficient. I don't need anyone else. I don't need any help. I don't need any assistance. I can do it myself. We learn that from the very earliest age. I remember when one of my grandsons was visiting our house and he was just learning how to tie his shoes. He could tie his shoes, but it would take him 15 minutes to do it. We needed to go somewhere, and we were in a hurry. And I said, Briar, put your shoes on, and let, let Grandpa tie your shoes. He looks at me, and he says, I can do it myself. I said, I know you can do it yourself, but we're in a hurry. Let Grandpa tie your shoes for you. I can do it myself. That's what we learn from a child. I can do it myself. And everything in our culture and our society tells us, you need to do it yourself. Don't depend upon anybody else. Be number one. Stand up for number one. Have it your way. A lion is self-sufficient, but a lamb is shepherd-dependent. I don't know whether you've ever studied sheep, but you never, ever find sheep in the wild. You find almost every other kind of animal in the wild, even a domesticated pet, a dog or a cat can get along by themselves, usually, but not a sheep. They are so dumb. They can't find water themselves. They can't find food for themselves. They can't defend themselves. They can't find their way back home. The only thing they can do is follow the shepherd And pray that the shepherd will lead them beside still water. (laughs) And to provide food and nutrition for them. You see, a lamb is totally dependent upon the shepherd. Have you read John chapter 10 lately? Where Jesus talks about his sheep and he says, they know my voice. They know me. And my sheep will follow me and I will take care of them. Third, a lion claims his rights. A lion is very territorial. A lion will mark out his territory and woe be unto any other animal or even another male lion that ever intrudes upon that lion's territory. They are very territorial. They claim their rights. Well, I've known a lot of Christians like that. This is my territory. A lot of Christians are really hung up on rights as so many Americans. We have women's rights and children's rights and this right and that right. We're all all caught up in rights today. And the church so often is in this thing of my rights. And Joy and I have done so much marital counseling in the last 45 years. And over and over and over we have heard, well, she has no right. He has no right. Or I have a right to my space and I have a right to say and I have a right and I have a right and I have a right. 
We have found through the years that almost all marital problems boils down to rights. A husband, I'm right, she's not, he's not right, rights, 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 rights. Well, a lion is territorial and claims his rights, but a lamb surrenders his rights. Have you read Isaiah 53 lately? As a lamb before her shears is dumb, so he opened not his mouth. Read through Isaiah 53 and see how the spotless lamb of God, the one who created this universe, the one who had enough power to speak worlds into existence and simply to say, let there be light, and there was light. He became the spotless Lamb of God and he surrendered himself to be scourged, to have his beard plucked from his face, to have the crown of thorns put upon him. He was beaten so severely that the Bible says you couldn't even tell he was a human being. He didn't even look like a man because he became the spotless Lamb of God for you and for me and he surrendered all of his rights. Here's number four, and I'll hurry again. The lion is characterized by domination. Domination. A lion is incredibly intimidating. I was in Kenya several years ago, and we went on safari. It's weird because you go to these big game preserves. Here in America, the animals are in cages, and you are out in the open. In Africa, you're in the cage. The animals are in the open. You're in a car, you know. And when we entered the game preserve, we were told, do not under any circumstance exit your vehicle. If there is an emergency, wait until a park ranger comes. Do not under any circumstance leave your vehicle. Do not get out for pictures, blah, 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 blah. And then they told us just two days before we were there, there was a whole carload of Japanese tourists. Now, what do we know about Japanese tourists? Right? Click, click, click. Well, it's a true story. One or two of them wanted to get out of the car and get some closer shots, and they were killed by a lion and eaten just a couple days before we were there. So we were told, under no circumstances, nothing, no emergency, do not exit your vehicle. It could be very dangerous. So we're about an hour into driving all through, and we saw all kinds of animals. We saw hippos and giraffes. We saw everything. And we got a flat tire. We did. We got a flat tire. The missionary that we are with had been in this game preserve on several occasions, and he says, well, we need to change the tire. We said, didn't you hear? Oh, don't pay attention to that. You know. Said, we need to change the tire. There was another man and I, another missionary and myself in the car and says, we're not getting out of this car. <laughs> he says, we need to change the tire. He says, I'll change the tire. And he pointed to me and he said, you take that corner of the car. And he turned to the other missionary and he said, you take that corner of the car. You just watch. That's it. I'll change the tire. You just watch. And if you see anything, you let me know. Right. So we get out, we're watching, he's changing the tire, and I kid you not, we heard a lion roar. Now, 
you can hear a lion for five and a half miles. Did you know that? You can hear the lion roar for five and a half miles. Now, I don't know whether he was five and a half miles or five and a half feet, and I didn't care. <laughs> I was scared spitless. I heard a lion, hurry up and get the tire changed quick. Well, we made it obviously, but lions can be very, very intimidating because they dominate. Now, lions have a, a little family, you know. Each male lion has his own little family, and they, uh, oh my goodness, oh, oh no, I forgot. What do they call the lion's little family? You sure about that? Yeah. The pride. There is no other animal in the animal kingdom that is characterized by his pride other than a lion. I don't think that's an accident that the one animal that is symbolized as the devil in the New Testament is characterized by his pride. You see, the devil is characterized by pride. My brother, my sister in Christ tonight, you are never more like the devil than when you are filled with human pride. Because you are like the old lion himself. Have you read about the sins of Sodom? In Ezekiel chapter 16, there is a list of the sins in the city of Sodom. Why God destroyed Sodom. Well, we all know why God destroyed Sodom. It was because of homosexuality. That's why God destroyed Sodom. Bunch of homosexuals there, right? Well, that was certainly a part of it. But if you go to Ezekiel chapter 16, which is the only place in Scripture that actually gives you a list of the sins of Sodom, do you know what the first sin is, number one on the list? Pride. That's number one. You see, folks, I believe that homosexuality is a problem, and I think we need to take a stand. I don't think we should be embarrassed to call homosexual, homosexuality sin, although... This church ought to be the place where they find more love than any place else in this city. Right here. This is where they ought to find love. Doesn't mean you condone what they do. I think we ought to take a stand, but listen to me. I've been preaching for a long time, and I've been around hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of local churches. I have never yet seen a local church destroyed by a group of homosexuals in the church. But I could stand here for hours and tell you about churches that have been destroyed by pride. Fundamental, Bible-believing, independent Baptist churches that have been torn apart because of pride. The lion is known for his pride and his domination. The shepherd, however, just, or the sheep, the lamb, just follows the shepherd. 
The lamb doesn't try to stake out a territory. The lamb doesn't care about what's his. The lamb just simply wants to know from the shepherd, what do you want me to do today? Where are we going today? Where can I follow you today? That's the lamb. And then finally, and I'll close quickly, a lion is even more vicious when it's hurt. Lions are always vicious. But lions are even more vicious when they're wounded or when they're hurt. You don't want to approach a lion at any time, but especially not if they're wounded. Several years ago, we had a little dog, little black and white dog, cutest little thing. His name was Barney. Barney Bernie. And that was the most docile, that was the most laid-back dog I've ever seen. Kids could pull its tail and pull its ears and sit on it and lay on it. We never, ever saw that dog growl or bare his teeth. He was just so laid back. One night, he got out of the house and ran out into the street in front of our house and was run over, believe it or not, by a member of our church. She was delivering pizza, and she ran over little Barney, and we came up just a few minutes after it happened, and Barney was laying out in the middle of the street, and it was clear that he was hurt, and I went out, and we were stopping traffic, and I went out to try to pick him up and get him out of the middle of the street, and as I went to pick him up as gentle as I could, he bit me. It was so out of character but he did it because he was hurt. And when I tried to pick him up, it hurt him even more. And for the very first time, he became aggressive. Have you learned that hurt people hurt people? Most of the people who hurt others do so because they are bearing hurt of some kind in their life. And it's the human response. When someone hurts you, you hurt them back. You retaliate. You want vengeance. How often have we seen that on TV, on Dateline, or 24-hour, or 48-hour mystery, or whatever it is. Here someone is killed, and the mother and the father. We want vengeance, and we want justice, because they've been hurt. They want to hurt somebody else. Well, you see, that's like the lion. But you see, the lamb, when it is hurt, just cries for the shepherd. The lamb, when it's hurt, cries for the shepherd. I don't believe you've ever heard of a sheep attacking someone or a sheep biting someone. They just cry until the shepherd comes and picks them up and meets their needs. Now, we could go on, but I'll just ask you this question. Tonight, in your home, your family, even on your job, are you the lion or are you the lamb? Now, some would say, if I, be, if I become like the lamb, everybody will just walk all over me and they'll take advantage of me. Well, not if you're following the shepherd, you see, because being the lamb doesn't mean weak. It just means you only do what the shepherd tells you to do. 
And sometimes the shepherd tells you to be strong. Sometimes the shepherd tells you to make tough decisions and be strong, but you only do that when you are led by the shepherd. It's not in your own strength. Being meek does not necessarily mean weak. In the book of Revelation, you find the word lion three times in the entire book. Here in Revelation chapter 5 is the only time that it refers to Jesus. The lion of the tribe of Judah hath prevailed. You see, here's what I believe this means. Jesus earned the right to be the lion of the tribe of Judah. He had the legal right to be the lion. But he always chose to conquer as the lamb. The word lion appears three times in the book of Revelation. It refers to Jesus only here in Revelation 5. However, Jesus is referred to as the lamb 27 times in the book of Revelation. 27 times. Now very quickly, go over to Revelation chapter 17. Would you? Then we're almost done. Revelation chapter 17. I want to read a description of one of the greatest battles that will ever take place on this earth. Revelation chapter 17, begin in verse 10. And there are seven kings, five are fallen, and one is, and the other is not yet come. And when he cometh, he must continue a short space. And the beast that was and is not, even he is the eighth, and is of the seven, and goeth into perdition. And the ten horns which thou sawest are ten kings which have received no kingdom as yet, but receive power as kings one hour with the beast. They have one mind and shall give their power and strength unto the beast. This is talking about a war that's going to happen towards the end of the tribulation. And all of the kings and all the leaders and all the political kingdoms of the earth are going to come together. And they're going to give all of their authority and all of their power to the beast, the Antichrist. And this massive conglomeration of all of the human physical military powers on the earth are going to come together with the Antichrist. And they're going to wage war. Verse 14. These shall make war with who? And who shall overcome them? The Lamb shall overcome them, for he is Lord of lords and King of kings. And they that are with him are called and chosen and faithful. Even in that great apocalyptic battle, he will not conquer as the lion. He will conquer as the lamb. Now, there is one battle that was even greater than this battle will be. It was fought on Mount Calvary a little over 2,000 years ago. Would you agree that that was the greatest battle ever fought on this planet when Satan and his host came against Jesus Christ on Calvary's tree? Now, who won that battle? Jesus won the battle. At Calvary, would you agree with me that he conquered sin, death, hell, and the grave? Amen? Did he conquer as the lion? Or did he conquer as the lamb slain from the foundation of the world? 
folks, the message that I have just preached to you makes no sense. It's foolishness. It's nonsense. When the lion is going around seeking whom he may devour, God wants us to be a bunch of lambs. Yes, he does. Because he is our shepherd. And he will take care of his sheep. It is not our responsibility to determine that we will be lions. It is our responsibility to surrender to our shepherd and become lambs following him. So, are you the lion? Or are you the lamb? Everything on this planet will tell you, you must be the lion. This book tells us, be the lamb.